According to the Federal Reserve, the annual rate of inflation in the United States has risen to 8.6%, a 40-year high. As Fed Chair Jerome Powell said, many Americans have never experienced anything like this. And they're deeply concerned about it. Fed research says that consumers expect inflation to remain high for years. A Pew survey from May found 70% of respondents viewing inflation as a, quote, very big problem, albeit with a large and telling partisan split. It's a major concern for 84% of Republicans and 57% of Democrats. How can regular people have such different experiences of what is supposed to be an objective economic measure? The press often talks about inflation without exploring some pretty basic questions about it. What causes it? How do we measure it? Why does it cause panic in consumers and politicians alike? And with the health of the U.S. economy and Democratic control of the U.S. government on the line, what should Joe Biden's administration do about it? I'm Laura Marge. And I'm Alex Perrine. This is The Politics of Everything. We're talking with Claudia Sam. She's an economist and founder of stay-at-home macro consulting. She's worked at the Federal Reserve and the White House and has advised Congress. Claudia, thanks so much for joining. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So the last period of high inflation ended in the 1980s. And a lot of people, including myself and Alex, haven't actually lived through a period like that. So just to start off with, what is inflation and how can we tell it's happening? Right. Inflation is an increase in prices. And the the numbers that we hear bandied about in the press are usually about all prices. If the United States had one big shopping basket, and rich people get to put more in the shopping basket, but if we had one big shopping basket, it's basically what does it cost to check out today versus what it cost to check out last month or last year. How do they measure the prices? The Bureau of Labor Statistics is the main agency collecting the price data. They have been doing it for decades and decades. As an example of the way they do this is they go to the grocery store. (laughs) They have a certain basket of goods. And I mean, it's very detailed. It's like the eggs, the pork chops. They have a set of stores that they have chosen. They go look at those prices. They go back a month later and look at those prices. But they spend a lot of time and care making sure that they're comparing apples to apples. Mm. I mean, mm-hmm. kind of making a joke there about the grocery <laughs> store. But, it's, but it's, it's really important. And, you know, over time, there are new things to buy. Yeah. Like when the iPhone came out, like the iPhone does things that it's like it's a camera, it can measure mm-hmm. things. I mean, it has a lot of goods wrapped up into it that normally the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics would look at separately. So they have a lot of challenges in how to measure. What's very important is they do it consistently over time. So it's not a perfect measure, but we can, with a lot of confidence, say inflation is high. So we can trust the numbers. They're going to the store. They're comparing the price of eggs to what it was last year. We can trust the statistics on this. Yeah, and they take their job very seriously. I think sometimes we get a little too excited about, you know, and it's 8.3 versus 8.4. It's like, come on. Like nothing (laughs) is that precise, but it's the best we have and it's good. I think we want to get to the causes of this in a little bit. But just talking about the measure, Laura was saying we have no real living memory of a period of high inflation. But over the last few years, I have a living memory of the cost of housing and the cost of higher education going up pretty consistently. 
Why was that not considered inflationary? Why wasn't that part of the basket of prices? Oh, we could have a long conversation about this. <laughs> but no, I mean, you're absolutely right. We do not have a lump of inflation. Like we all go out and make purchases and they're often very different purchases. People that bought their homes decades ago, their cost of living is paying off the mortgage that it was before. Maybe they're, you know, free and clear. If you're a young adult coming out, starting a family, needing to buy a home, it can be eye-popping. The cost of education and childcare. Like, there are families that have been dealing with, quote-unquote, high inflation for years and years, and gas prices go up and down. Mm -hmm. When you have high inflation like now, it just means that there's a lot of stuff that's going up. And so that is where it starts touching the lives of more and more people. And what that looks like over time, if we look under the hood and we've, if we'd been looking under the hood for a long time, you would see these problems. But because again, they affect narrow parts of the population. And then there's this whole thing called politics. They don't get addressed. <laughs> so before we get to the current moment of inflation, traditionally, what are the explanations for what causes inflation? Yeah, at a very simple level, prices rise when demand is more than supply. Mm. If people are able to still buy stuff, mm -hmm. right? Sometimes we just have a shortage and you just can't. But if you're still able to buy, it's it's like if I got a lot of money and I really want that, well, I'm going to I'm going to be willing to pay more and if there's a lot of me, then prices start going up. But normally, you know, the business if they see people really want to buy something, well then they go make more of it because mm -hmm. they actually make more money if they sell something <laughs> than like selling less stuff at a higher price. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the the market is supposed to work its magic. I mean, this is kind of Econ 101. <laughs> now that because it's Econ 101, it can miss subtleties, right? The last year is obviously an example in many ways that that hasn't worked. Like consumers came back a lot faster than the stuff they wanted. Just to step back for a second, so you said it's when demand is higher than supply. Would it be fair to say there's a couple of reasons that could be, right? So it could be that there's more demand. It could also be that there's less supply. And then the other could be that there isn't actually an imbalance between demand and supply, but companies are gouging because they figured out a way to do that, maybe because they're monopolies, they're not regulated. Yeah, it's a little tricky because inflation is an increase in prices. So you have to have like corporations have to have more pricing power mm -hmm. for it to go up. And often they have more pricing power when there's a lot of demand and not much supply. So it's, it's kind of hard to like pull it apart. But one thing that I think economists miss that like people understand is at the end of the day, like businesses set prices, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Like it's not, we actually, we actually have this thing in macro called the Calvo Ferry that like, it's a modeling thing, but it basically it's like this little ferry goes around and changes prices, right? <laughs> and so sometimes I think we forget that that's actually not the case. So a business is going to decide what the price is and how much to raise the price. And a business will often know, you know, if I raise the price, will the consumers come or will they go somewhere else? It's funny you describe that as sort of a controversial statement in economics, right? Because I guess price setting is this really sort of fundamentally complicated thing that economists have been arguing about for years. On the other hand, I went into a pizza place the other day and there was a guy crossing off the prices and writing 50 cents more for everything. <laughs> Like mm -hmm. that, that, there's price setting. Like the, pizza, yeah. the, the guy in the pizza shop. <laughs> that, that really happened? Like, yeah, I literally in saw, time. I saw a guy who was crossing off all the prices and everything oh. was now 50 cents more. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
And I don't want to I don't want to be too irreverent to the models, but it really is the case. Like businesses set prices, right? Like they're going to decide if prices increase or not and the consumers are going to decide whether they're willing to pay the price or not. Like somebody that walked into that pizza shop might have turned right around and went down the corner and eaten pizza there. <laughs> After the break, we'll talk about what makes this particular moment of inflation unique. We're talking with Claudia Sam. Claudia, what's special about this moment? What's triggered businesses to change their prices recently? Yeah, what's special about this moment? Well, it's, uh, yeah, it's like, what isn't special about this moment? <laughs> there are a couple of things, and it affects different businesses differently. COVID was extremely disruptive. We essentially shut a $20 trillion economy down. So early on, consumers stayed home, mm-hmm. businesses shut down, or really like went down. It was so hard to imagine what was going to happen next. And so a lot of businesses, I mean, first of all, businesses laid off workers, mm-hmm. millions of work really fast. And then a lot of businesses that sell stuff, they're like, wow, there ain't going to be any consumers for a while. So many of them canceled orders, mm-hmm. those semiconductors, right? Like, I mean, because <laughs> businesses in early 2020 were like, there's nothing here. They were expecting economic disaster, so they... Yeah, and, and honestly, policymakers, and I helped advise on this, I mean, it looked bad. Yeah. But then as we got further along, things were reopening. Mm. And especially this stuff became a problem because even if people were still at home working from home, they needed a new computer for their office. They needed Mm. like my dishwasher broke and the entire family is at home. Right. And then that ran into the fact that a lot of businesses had stopped their orders. So you had customers who wanted things. You had supply in a very unusual way. Like it wasn't just that supply wasn't growing. It was like we were missing supply that Mm. we would have had, you know, if we hadn't had COVID. So that's the supply chain disruptions that we hear about. Mm -hmm. The other place that was really important is you you hear a lot about labor shortages, right? So there were also, it took a little longer, but you had people going back to the restaurants, going to the hotel. And a lot of these businesses had a hard time hiring back those workers that they laid off within days, right? right? And so that also was a place where they had to increase pay to get, you know, people back, but then you have to pass that cost on. And that's all with COVID. And then Putin invaded Ukraine. I mean, like, this is just, there have been so many unusual events. So you had this collision of missing a lot of supply and people ready to get back out and spend. Sort of unexpected demand, right? The other thing that happened is... About this time a year ago, inflation had started stepping down. For about four months, it stepped down and stepped down. And then we got Delta. And then we got Omicron. Mm -hmm. And that, I mean, I often say, and I mean it sincerely, inflation was not transitory, but COVID was not either. Mm-hmm. Right. And like we're we are not out of this. And so that makes it very hard. If that's your causes of inflation, is the supply no Federal Reserve interest rate increase is going to fix that problem. No. <laughs> Let's get to that because okay. what is the thing that the Federal Reserve can do? Like what is the tool they have? How would that work? And then maybe we can talk about uh, the things that it can't do. The Federal Reserve has one tool. It has one tool and two jobs. Mm-hmm. The tool it has is interest rates. And interest rates, again, are a price. 
Hmm. Interest rates are, what does it cost you to buy stuff now instead of later? Because if interest rates are high, you could save it and not spend, and then you get a little bit more later. Hmm. Okay, the reality (laughs) is that if interest rates go up, it pushes down spending now. Mm-hmm. A lot of Americans don't have savings or a cushion. They have debt. Mm-hmm. Interest rates go up. They're spending more money servicing debt. Interest rates go up. It's harder to buy a house, a car. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of things where it's just going to, I mean, a kind of crass way to say it is the Fed just makes us poorer. <laughs> so we spend less. They would never say that. Right. And in some ways, it's like it, it's not their fault. Like the only tool they have is one that can encourage less spending or during the recession, more spending. Right. Mm-hmm. We should explain the dual mandate because you alluded to the dual mandate. OK, so like I said, they have one tool and two jobs, which you can imagine how this is going to go. Their dual mandate is price stability. Mm-hmm. So like they so no inflation, like mm-hmm. they're well, fight or inflation or limited low, inflation, low and stable inflation, mm-hmm. which right. is not what we have right now. And their other mandate is maximum employment. Mm-hmm. And that one. So with the price stability, they say, OK, what we think of that is 2 percent inflation using the personal consumption expenditure price index, which is a little different than the consumer price index. So they have a very specific definition. They tell us what data, they tell us what number. Maximum employment, they have this line that it's like, we look at a wide range of indicators. The Federal Reserve cannot determine what maximum... So they basically punt on this thing. (laughs) But the basic idea is unemployment is low. And it's as low as it can be before we start having inflation. So it has these two jobs. And if they raise interest rates, that can typically or traditionally lower inflation. But how does it affect unemployment? This is very confusing to me as someone who knows relatively little about economics. I don't understand why when I hear wages are too high or too many people have jobs, how that could be a bad thing. Well, first of all, when you hear that, they're wrong. (laughs) But in the past, just as kind of an empirical regularity, like just something that happened in the world is you see a negative relationship Like to get inflation down, unemployment has to go up. Mm. It's referred to as the Phillips curve. But the thing is, is even before the pandemic, when economists looked at this and would try to take the data and really, you know, figure out exactly how much that trade-off is, it had broken down. Mm. But, you know, the logic, the logic is there. So how does the logic work? Remember, the Fed is raising interest rates just to cool off demand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily want us to buy less. It's just like chill out just a little bit if that works, right? And and interest rates convince people, I'm just going to hold off. I'm going to wait, not going to buy as much. Then that means they're not going in the store as much. And well, if a business has you know, fewer and fewer customers. They don't need all these employees. Mm. So that's where less spending leads to less revenues for businesses. Mm -hmm. That means employers need less people, or at least workers don't have the bargaining power Mm -hmm. to, like, get better stuff. And then that means those workers spend less money. You get a kind of a spiral going. We call it a multiplier. Macroeconomists should not be allowed to name anything. <laughs> but, like, that's kind of what the Fed needs. It's all sort of described 
with what I would say is very dry terminology, but there are people who argue, I don't think you argue this, but there are people who argue that the Fed needs to cool off the economy. And they, they actually mean make people poorer so that the inflation gets better. Is that That's sort of what they actually are arguing for? Yeah. So one of my many frustrations right now is acting like the Fed is the only game in town. Yeah. I was going to ask that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> because the much more supportive way, compassionate way is to increase supply. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Like it, the inflation is a problem, but we could solve the problem in a way that it's a win-win. Policymakers and then advisors like me have this tendency to be like the Fed fights inflation. And it's like, hi, you have you, Congress and the White House have actually a lot more tools Mm -hmm. and you have the tools to increase supply. Mm -hmm. So, like, please, let's spend less time yelling at the Fed for either doing too much or not doing enough. And we need a recession and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, actually, we don't need those things. Congress and the White House could do a lot. And so you mentioned also that the tool the Fed has isn't sufficient to fight what's causing inflation right now because gas prices are a big part of this and also the price of goods. What's the worst case scenario if we don't tackle those issues separately and the Fed still goes ahead with using the one tool that it has? Yeah. So, I mean, it's like, be careful what you wish for, right? Like the Fed can get inflation down regardless of what it is. J-Pal cannot print oil. He cannot (laughs) print wheat, right? So the Fed can't increase supply, but they can bring down demand Mm -hmm. and they can bring it down a lot if they need to. Like back in that, you know, the early 80s glory days or whatever, inflation had been high for a decade, Paul Volcker, who is the Fed chair at that point, that Federal Reserve engineered intentionally a deep recession. Mm-hmm. So the Fed, they can do it. If we ask them to go it alone and we don't finally get some things to break our way, mm-hmm. like in terms of COVID, mm-hmm. then it's going to be very hard. But it's different than the 70s. This Fed is not going to cause a recession intentionally. Because there's just, I mean, we've had a year of high inflation. This is not like a five alarm fire right now. <laughs> I think the politicians and policymakers will, will, it feels like almost, you know, praise the independence of the Fed and ask it to tame inflation almost as a way for not having to take any difficult steps of their own to address these complicated problems. So the chair of the Federal Reserve, Jay Powell, goes, or all Federal Reserve chairs, go twice a year to Congress, the Senate and the House. So this morning, he was testifying in the Senate. Mm -hmm. I watched about a half an hour of it, and I logged off because I was so angry. Because it was like half of the senators were like, Fed, you're not doing enough to fight inflation. And then the other half were, if you do too much, you're going to cause a recession. And I'm listening to this and I'm like, if you adjourned and went off and worked on some legislation. (laughs) You guys could get together and write a bill or two. Yeah, it's like, wouldn't energy policy be neat right now? Well, where does this idea come from of just leaving it to the Fed? What's the rationale for that? The conventional wisdom, particularly after Paul Volcker, who is like put on a 
pedestal and was the most, you know, the brave head chair beat inflation. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> after that, it was like, oh, see, the Fed can do this. Mm-hmm. And over time, it got to the point where it's like the Fed alone should do this. Mm-hmm. Like housing was really expensive and a problem before the crisis. And Congress, like back in the day, could have been building housing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So maybe it would have made the Fed's problems easier. And, you know, I I have a lot of respect for members of Congress. They are elected. They have a hard job. White House also. But my impression was that many policymakers don't really understand the Fed. Mm -hmm. And this idea that like, oh, the Fed fights inflation, the Fed can take care of this. And it's like, yeah, but you could make it better. And and I think because high inflation hasn't happened for so long, there's a little bit of like the skill set has atrophied. No one's had to figure out anti-inflation policy for many years. And yeah. they're, so they're just kind of think that that's the Fed's job, not ours. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about how the Fed can't do this on their own. What could Congress do to help them? So there is a long list, but one that has a particular urgency would be be energy policy. So the price of gasoline has doubled since before the pandemic, and it has risen $1.50 in the last three months since Mm -hmm. Putin invaded Ukraine. That is a massive change in a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. That creates a lot of hardship. So there is an opportunity for Congress to come together and pass energy legislation. The thing that will bring down gas prices is either an increase in the supply of gas or a decrease in the demand for gas. You know, a proposal from President Biden is supposedly on its way to repeal the federal gas tax. So have a gas tax holiday. So that, you know, mechanically should bring down the price of the pump, maybe not the whole amount. Unfortunately, when you bring a price down, you create more demand. More demand for <laughs> right. it, yeah. Right. And people's demand for gas is much more stable than a lot of things. Like, we, nobody's like, oh, the price of gas is down. I'm going to drive to work twice. But, like, you know, I've been talking with a lot of people and, like, some wonks. And really, the only way to get more supply is to work with oil producers. Like, we have to refill the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. You could give options to producers and say, when we go to fill that, we guarantee we'll buy back your oil at a certain dollar amount. So there are things that you could do to increase supply. And then decreasing demand, the one I think would be so simple, is we saw during COVID actually a big decrease in the use of gas. Mm -hmm. And in part, that was from we were all sent home to work. Mm -hmm. And so now people are going back and so you're seeing the gas demand get to before. So it's like, just say, work from home for all federal government workers. (laughs) Corporations work from, I mean, like this would actually be a popular way. Yeah, and I think this gets to what you're saying about politicians not having any experience with inflation because it does seem like there's a ton of ways they could reduce demand without making it seem like a punishment for people. Encourage a four-day work week, encourage hybrid work from home, subsidize electric vehicles for people. You know, there's all sorts of things they could be doing for this one specific thing, but it does seem like they're not thinking that creatively. Yeah, well, and I had the opportunity to speak before a large group of House Democrats in March. So like right after Putin invaded. And I told them, I said, you need to move heaven and earth to get gas prices down. Not only are the politics outrageously bad for them, Mm -hmm. but it's a hardship. 
and lower income people spend more of their income on gas. Like it's one of these quote unquote regressive taxes. Mm-hmm. So it's like you need to do something and calling it the Putin price hike. Well, like I agree with that, like the dollar fifty in three months, like it's clear where that's coming from. But like people can't fill the tank on patriotic warm fuzzies. Right. (laughs) And so I think that's where there's been this big delay. I don't understand why. And I can be very frustrated with other policy advisors like myself, who many people are like, oh, this wouldn't work and it wouldn't be the full amount. It's fine to be critical of a policy. Nothing is perfect. But like, what's your better idea? Yeah. Because doing nothing is really the worst thing because people are suffering. Claudia Somm, thank you so much for joining us today. It was so cheerful. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> the Politics of Everything is co-produced by TalkHouse. Emily Cook is our executive producer. Myron Kaplan is our audio editor. If you enjoyed The Politics of Everything and you want to support the show, one thing you can do is share this episode with a friend. Thanks for listening.